0: Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am Jethro Jones, your host, and I am excited to invite you to participate in the Transformative Leadership Summit happening August 1st through 14th. We are going to have a great list of amazing guests who will be presenting. Jerry Pascal, John Wenstrom, Bill Ziegler, Chris Wieger, Justin Bader, Will Parker, and a host of other amazing principals and leaders to help you. Be the best principal you can be. Go to transformative leadership summit.com to sign up. Here I am with my second part of the interview with Rachel Yanoff, and you are really going to enjoy this. If you have not gone to transformative leadership summit.com yet and registered for that awesome experience of doing an online summit, please do. You will hear from many amazing people, including many past guests on this show and other new friends that I have met. So please go check that out and learn from some amazing people. What we're going to talk about in here about creating a vision is really going to be part of that Leadership Summit. So if you want to know more about that and how to make your school achieve the goals that you have for it, go to com. So your school gets 100% of your kids accepted to a college and what is it that makes that possible for you?
1: Yeah. So I love, I love that you split. You said, I just want to make sure that I, I am specific because I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to pad the numbers. A hundred percent of our graduating seniors are going to post-secondary. Not all of them are headed straight into a four-year university. So I just want to make sure I don't make it sound too much better. I mean, I'm really proud.
0: And you should be. That's an accomplishment too. So (laughs) that's pretty amazing.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So 83% of them, or 21 out of 25, were accepted to a four-year university. It doesn't mean they're all choosing to necessarily start that way. We have a few who are doing a cool program through our community college where they are officially accepted as ASU or um, NAU students, which are four-year universities, but they'll do two years at community college and then transfer in their junior year. So those, those are some specific differences that our some of our kiddos are doing. But what did we do to make that possible? Was actually your question. So I mean, we we've been reflecting on this. I mean, a couple of things. One is I really think that there is power in in stating a giant crazy goal and yelling it um, as loud as you can, because then you're held to it. And so, in part, what we did is we just created an expectation that didn't exist. And we created it so deeply in our community, with our families, with our external partners, that to fail was never going to be an option. It just, we couldn't and still hold our heads up as people because we had promised this, we had said it, we had put everything we had behind it. And, and for our kids too, right? They They were saying it, they were promising it. And so they also felt that same um, I mean, positive pressure. I guess is probably the right term, but to, to deliver on this on this dream, I think that that doesn't work though if all you're doing is yelling because and, and telling people because that doesn't actually mean that you did anything. But because we said it and because we promised it, then it also was became the fabric of how we made decisions. So all of our actions then had to follow in line with the idea of getting our kids prepared for college. So. It made us every year look at our curriculum and look at our look at our time with students and say we can't just make a year's worth of growth. That's that's actually not gonna work when our kids are coming in two or three grade levels behind. We always have to be thinking how do we make a year and a half to two years of growth? Because that's only that's the only way we're gonna get there. And so it pushed us to accelerate our curriculum, it pushed us to, you know, think creatively about the school day. How can we get more time? How can we get more instruction into the day? How can we get more after school? um support and Saturday academy things like that. So that and then I would say the other thing that I don't know necessarily is the way, is the reason that we made that that the promise became true but it certainly didn't hurt um is that you know we pushed ourselves to see if we were on track from the earliest place possible. So our students started taking advanced placement courses as freshmen. That does not mean that they were passing advanced placement classes as freshmen. I mean sorry passing the test they passed the classes but it, it did introduce a level of rigor that was external from us so ap you know college board was the one who approving our, our syllabus and i think it again held us to at, a, at as early a point as possible to this idea that if we're not meeting it now we have time to correct and, and change course but we ultimately have to get to this pinnacle of college and so let's find out what we're not doing right and let's change and change and change until we get there
0: so what were some of the things that you did specifically to make that growth happen more than just one year's growth? You mentioned Saturday Academy, but what other kinds of things did you do to ensure that that was actually happening?
1: One of the nice things about being a small school is that we were able to do a lot of individualized or small group instruction. So we you know, we were able to create intervention periods in our school day, which then let us sort of pull kids into smaller groups and focus on specific skills that they needed. And I think that that was a huge, huge win for our students because it meant that they were getting specific support in the areas they needed. That was also how we used our after-school and our Saturday academy time, was to say, we're not actually asking every kid to come. We're asking kids who all need to work on this skill or this one sort of subject area that will help them close some gaps and then be able to compete with their peers so I think that was one thing, the individualized or the, or the small group instruction. It's, it's not always just one-on-one. I, I would also say more time was a huge factor. Our students generally are in school for an hour longer than their peers in the, in the sort of area around us. And then if you add in Saturday Academy and after-school tutoring, it just is a lot more school time. And, and again, time itself doesn't work, but if that time is used well, I think that is a huge benefit for our students and then I, I guess I would go back to, I also think we pushed them in the time that we did have them in the regular school day to the very farthest limit of what they could do. And I think it's really easy to say, okay, we're going to teach sixth grade content to sixth graders because that's what sixth graders need. But it doesn't mean that they can't do seventh grade content. And so then pushing ourselves to find the areas where we could, I just, just finding that, that balance of let's push them as hard as we can without breaking them. (laughs) So really always trying to push to that um, has helped us, I think, to close some of the gaps because students want to rise to the challenge. And if you believe in them and if you give them the supports and the scaffolding to do so, then they almost always will.
0: Yeah. I've got about a million questions from all that. So let's start with measuring student success. What are you using to measure their ability and their level and how well, they are actually doing on what you're teaching them.
1: Mm -hmm. We haven't used this assessment always, but we have for the last three years been using the NWA map assessment as our sort of baseline, or I guess, well, not a baseline anymore, as our assessment holistically throughout our entire organization, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And the reason we picked that assessment is because as far as we can tell, NWA has done probably some of the most extensive work to try to figure out what truly does represent from a standardized assessment a college ready student. So just a really quick the rationale of that. NWA looked at a bunch of students who were getting B averages in college. They looked at all of their data to see what kind of ACT scores those kids were getting, sort of found what that general ACT score was, and then looked at what kinds of scores or what kind of percentile score those kids were getting on the NWA. So really worked backward and they sort of found that there was this the zone between 72 and 75th percentile on the NWA assessment would then be a pretty strong correlation to a college prepared and college successful student to be that B student. And so for us, we like data that that felt good. And it also felt like a measure that would help us to see early if kiddos were on track to being college success, right? I mean, it's hard to tell a kindergarten family, your kid's on track for college, but this actually is an assessment that helps us say, well... If they're scoring in the 75th percentile consistently, then you probably can feel good, all things being equal, that your student is on track. So we use that assessment, like I said, all all across our school. We use that in our parent conferences. Our families are able to communicate about the MAP test. And I think it just helps also as this, it's a national exam, and so we're not just comparing our students to other students in Arizona because our Arizona state test is only two years old. It's hard to say if that's preparing kids for college, because honestly, it's literally in its second iteration, so there's no evidence to say it is or is not. This is a test that actually can help us to see how we're doing in reading, writing, math. And there is a science exam that we've started to use, but we don't have enough years of data to say that that's actually helping us make curricular decisions yet. So I think that's one big thing network-wide that we're using that really is helping us have a coherent conversation across all parties, students, parents, and teachers
0: very cool. And how focused do you get on the skills students need to focus on in after school programs and Saturday school? How focused in is that? Are you talking just kids who are struggling in math or kids who are struggling in algebraic reasoning in math and or are you getting even deeper than that?
1: Yeah, I mean we encourage our teachers to get as deep as they can while still making the numbers make sense and I mean think probably everyone in education can understand, it, while it would always be really great to have a one-on-one or one-on-two, that's not generally going to be sort of financially feasible. So we ask teachers to dial down to sort of that, that balancing point of what is the the skill or the subset or the requisite knowledge that sort of the greatest number of students need without it being too big of a group (laughs) I don't really know a better way to say so there have been groups where we've said you're going to come in this morning and we are literally going to go through the principles of you know positive and negative integers and, and understanding just that whole sort of number system which you know that can that and that can be a group of kiddos from second grade all the way up through ninth grade who just still don't understand integers in a in a really strong sense we don't generally put ninth graders and second graders together but as a sort of extreme example. At the same time, we've also had groups where they have come in and it has been, let's say, 15 kiddos because they're all working on grammar and sort of idea creation and writing. And it actually helps to have a bigger group because then you can have some peer support and some Real in the moment coaching from your peers, so so it really depends. But again, we try to find that sweet spot of find a specific skill that you can remediate and work with students on, but not have it be so small that it becomes sort of impossible for the school financially to support.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of my other questions about having a small school. You had 25 seniors graduate, so I'm assuming about 100 kids in your in your high school. One of my challenges with having small schools is that you don't have the people that you have in a larger school to deal with everybody else. So, you know, it sounds like those kids who are doing well enough are not coming to Saturday school, but the reality is that most kids, I would assume, are because most kids are so far behind. So how do you have the numbers of adults to be able to support the kids who need help and the finances to make sure that you can pay the teachers to come in after school and on Saturdays?
1: Yep. I have no perfect answer to that. A large part of my job is raising money. So a large reason that I raise money is because I want to be able to support all these extra programs. So I think we certainly spend the resources we have every given year to make sure that we're doing the maximum amount of support for our students while still respecting the fact that our teachers need to eat and need to go home sometimes. So it's I think, honestly, that is sort of like the calculus we're doing every day, is we know we need to offer X, we have the means to offer Y, and then we play to find that perfect balance where we get as close to what we really want to offer with still being able to financially support it. And we're not always hitting it out of the park. I mean, I I would love to tell you that we that we have figured out the perfect answer and that it's all perfectly funded. It's not Arizona's the 50th lowest in per pupil funding in the country. So there's not enough money to to even just do the the basic program. So we also are lucky that we have the kind of teachers who will go above and beyond for students. We try very hard to always find a way to compensate them. But, you know, there are a lot of teachers who will just stay after school because it's what they believe in and what they want to do for students. And so they, you know, we try to reward them in other ways. But it's not always a perfect ability to, to compensate them.
0: Yeah. And what are some of your other ways of compensating them?
1: We do a lot of teacher appreciation. I mean, I think that that's probably overused, but I don't think there's anything wrong with buying lunches or have like our, our governing board is really great about once a month sponsoring some teacher appreciation type things. So we have a board member who, who works with the Phoenix Suns. So we've had basketball tickets and, you know, event type things that our teachers have been able to go to. We do try to do some of that, that like, the, like the thing that I think actually matters to a lot to teachers. We do a lot of getting videos of our kids thanking their teachers and telling teachers how what a difference it has made. And I think those things help, right? Because it's, it's tough and it can be lonely and it can feel impossible at a lot of times. But those moments really, really help We try to remember that they're humans by sending them home sometimes (laughs) and just saying there is no PD, go home and and be a human. Uh, That seems to go a long way. We have found it is amazing what a Jeans Friday will do for teacher spirits, so we we use those when they're needed. I think a lot of little stuff. Uh, And then we also, we do have a fund here in Arizona that isn't necessarily existing in every state, but we have a pay for performance fund that we are statutorily required to have to use sort of as a way to compensate teachers for doing a great job. And so we work really hard to create a system so that that, that teachers can be rewarded for amazing results with students. And I think that that actually also helps puts money where we say it matters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In the mastermind that I run with uh, some principals, one of our principals is from Phoenix, and he walked us through how he calculated bonuses for his teachers. And it was fascinating to look at the student data when it actually was translated into Dollars for the teacher and how not having worked in a state myself where that is a, a thing. Um, it was just fascinating to see that for me. And really, you know, all of the teachers were showing high growth and high achievement with their students. And it was just very cool to see how different his quadrant scores in the map looked compared to mine. And I was looking at mine and looking at his data and just fascinating to see how you know that does matter and make a difference so the real question that i have is is this scalable can a regular public school do the same thing that you're doing when we've got 4 or 5 700 students in a small public school and you know up to 1500 2000 and more in a bigger school is it scalable
1: it's a great question. I think so. I think on the dollars and cents level, you can say yes because we have the same dollars, basically, that most district schools do. There's an argument always in Arizona that districts get more or charters get more, and I think, honestly, in most urban areas, that's kind of a wash. We pretty much have the same the same general funds. They're kind of bucketed in different ways. So I think you could make the argument that, sure, from a financial perspective, yes, you could do it. It, it would really look different. I think. I mean, it would really look differently as far as what the traditional model of, of district schools look like. I think that one of the challenges, though, that I haven't been able to figure out is we've been lucky. I mean, part of our advantage of being small is that when we have to hire a bunch of people, we're talking about having to hire, like, you know, 20 out of a total staff of 80. That That's, like, a huge number to us, right? But you've got these districts where they have to hire 100 people because, they've got, you know, they've got a total staff of, a thousand or something and, and and it's hard to find and I think it's hard on, a, on that scale to really possibly, uh, I've never been this person so I'm, I'm projecting now, dive in and, and find those people who are, are hired on mission and on passion and on vision and and I think just in general something I'm very afraid of from the teaching perspective is that we don't compensate teachers effectively um, or adequately and what's going to happen when teaching becomes the field where only people who are formerly independently wealthy can can be part of it there's just not enough people <laughs> who fit that bill and so finding quality teachers is, is just hard and i think that's a huge part of why we've been successful but again we've had we've only had to done a pretty small scale so i don't know if that's if that's exactly the answer that you're looking for or if that even answers the exact question you're asking but it is something that i that i think about so i, I do think on the surface it's possible it would be a radical rethinking of how schools look but i i do see some pretty big hurdles nationally in the profession that I I don't know that we have answers to right now.
0: Yeah. And for those who are listening, if you have not checked out the Transformative Leadership Summit yet, we are interviewing people like Scott Beebe, who's going to talk about how to set a mission. What Rachel has said today about how to have a mission and a vision for your school that is laser focused, I think, is the real part that needs to be scaled because if you can say this is what our school is about, then you can meet that goal. But if your school is just about educating, then you're always going to, you know, have these varying levels of success. But when your goal is to get every kid ready for college and you say that at the beginning of your time as principal and you make that a point I believe you can achieve that no matter what school you're in. If that's what your goal really is, and if you do all these things to meet that goal, then I believe that's possible. And I think that that's the real power of your story, Rachel, is being a part of that and being able to say, this is who we are. So when you're hiring people, the first question is, do you believe all kids can go to college? And are you willing to make that happen? If the answer is anything other than absolutely, when can I start? Then (laughs) that's not a good fit for your school. And You know, I think that that really boils down the big difference between your school and a regular public school is not that you're a charter or anything like that. It's that you have a specific mission and it is to get kids into post-secondary education. And if you're not bought into that vision, then there's no point in being there. Mm
1: -hmm. It certainly is an easy first question, right? (laughs) You either believe in this mission or you don't. And if you don't, wonderful power to you, but it's not going to work here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Rachel, the last question that I ask, really appreciate your time here today, is: What can someone do starting today to be a transformative principal like you?
1: I think that you know my my limited experience of one time doing this, right? My one school that I've been founding and, and part of is find that thing that you're willing to live and die for, and then tell everyone loudly because that will hold you to it. <laughs> and I think. If you put it out there in the universe and then you fight for it every day, it, it, it's amazing how likely you are to succeed. And the, the people that I see who don't succeed in this are the people who are timid or sort of insular. And I think, I don't think you can be in something that's bold and crazy. So I really think find what it is, scream it loud from the mountaintops, and then and then do it.
0: Wonderful advice. If people want to learn more about you, Rachel, how can they get in touch with you and learn more?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm always happy to get emails about anything. So my email is Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L at P-H-X-C-A dot org. Or you can go to our um, website for our school and find me as well, Phoenix Collegiate Academy. And we're just P-H-X-C-A org.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been an honor.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate
0: it. So that was a really great interview with her. And thank you so much for listening. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review for this podcast, that would mean the world to me. You can tap a link in the show notes at transformativeprinciple.org to get you right to the leaving a review page in iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and please share this with other colleagues who will benefit from it. Transformative Principle is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts.